you turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 11, this is the really second part of my sermon from last week. As I told you, as we study through the Gospels, we're looking at three different types of writers, or excuse me, four different types of writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They write in their own style and yet inspired by the Holy Spirit. And one particular idea that I pointed out to you last week in the, in the book of Mark is Mark oftentimes takes the stories of Jesus. Mark tends to be very chronological in the way that he writes. And, and in, in the wisdom of the Holy Spirit and through his style, uh, he delivers his gospel um, in a way where he gives us what are called Markan sandwiches. And that's what they're called. That's what scholars have called them. And basically what he did is, is he takes one main um, idea, like we studied last week, being the Jesus clearing the temple, but he connects ideas with them. So that being first Jesus cursing the fig tree, which we believe he did before he went to the temple. And then you have the clearing of the temple. And then you have on the backside of that our passage today, which is a, a lesson about that cursed fig tree. And in saying all that, Mark is trying to uh, draw us t- uh, and our attention to the connected truths that are in that passage so that we don't see the cursing of the fig tree separate from the clearing of the temple. And so this Mark and Sandwich then will be completed this morning with our passages in Mark 11, 20 through 25, as Jesus gives us the lesson to have faith in God. That's the directive this morning. That's the simple message that Jesus gives us and to his disciples. And we're going to look at why he says these things. What does that have to do with this cursed fig tree? And, and on a greater scale, what does it have to do with the, the clearing of the temple? And why Jesus condemned the temple uh, as we looked at last week. So Mark chapter 11, verses 20 through 25. Let's, let me read this for us. It says, as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. So Jesus is uh, on, the, on the backside on a Monday where he is journeying to Jerusalem, and they stop and they see a fig tree that Jesus is hoping to uh, have fruit upon it, but as, as we learned last week, the, the tree was in full bloom and yet fruitless. Jesus curses the tree, says that no longer will their fruit uh, grow on this tree, and then we looked at how that was represented 
a representative of the, uh, the next event in this day where Jesus goes to the temple. And in that temple, there's money changers set up in the court of the Gentiles, and Jesus is, is uh, he's indignant of the way that, that the people, the religious leaders there, and the Jews in general have turned away from God, and they have basically tried to profit off of God. They turned this court of Gentiles into a place of commerce. And so in Jesus cursing the, temp, in cursing the fig tree, Jesus is pointing forward to the judgment of the people of God that, that had turned their faith away uh, in, in God alone, and they had put their faith in other things. And thus the condemnation for the Jews was that this temple would be destroyed, that they would be condemned in their sin and their lack of faith in him which is why the fig tree represented this whole scenario because it was a fruitless tree. Well, now it's the next day. Jesus and the disciples have traveled back to Bethany. Bethany was, as one writer calls it, like their safe house. It was where they went and stayed, most likely at the house of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And that's where they would stay and they, they would journey the short distance from Jerusalem, the city, to the outer, outer skirts in Bethany, and they would sleep there. And so now they're journeying back into our passage today. And again, they're passing by the same road, and Peter sees this fig tree that Jesus has cursed. And he's shocked. Notice the word, Rabbi, behold. Or Rabbi, look. This is astonishment. This is amazement. From Peter, the great Peter who speaks before he thinks. And he's shocked that this fig tree that was cursed the day before had withered. Why is he so astonished? Well, his astonishment is not unrealistic. I mean, if you go to your house today on a Sunday afternoon and you dump the harshest chemicals on a plant in your garden or in your, in your front yard you're not going to expect that plant to be completely brittle and dry the next day. You're going to expect those chemicals to begin to change and transform that plant in its pigment and coloration. That the green would, would maybe uh, almost uh, within a few hours flee from that, that uh, living plant so that the, the, the browns and the yellows start to show. But it would probably take at least two or three days for uh, the continual dying of that plant uh, to occur before it was just a brittle, lifeless thing. And I think the logic of Peter and his astonishment is, is that on the next day, not 24 hours later, they're not looking at a wilted plant. They are looking at a withered plant. A dried up plant. And a, a, a plant that has no life. It's the same word withered that is used for the man's hand that Jesus encounters uh, in the synagogue in, in the early part of his ministry. His hand was lifeless. It had no function. It was in essence dried up. And this astonishment leads Jesus to teach his disciples once again. He doesn't really 
answer the question or really address necessarily Peter's concern. He doesn't go into the biology of, of, uh, of the plant and how he overcame it with a miracle. He just basically says, have faith in God, guys. Have faith in God. That's the command for his disciples in this moment. And remember, this is the final days of Jesus' life. Jesus is constantly a disciple maker. And so many of the words that Jesus gives, he's giving to his disciples for the purpose of equipping them and training them for the work of, uh, ahead. And they had seen Jesus do amazing miracles. So it really should not have shocked Peter. And it may be an instance where Peter was uh, shooting first and aiming second. But the idea is, is that the astonishment just reminds us of his lack of faith. Believing that God, that the Lord Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. That he could literally give life at the command of his mouth and take life away at the command of his mouth. This is what God does. This is the God that we are commanded to have faith in. Have faith in God. And so our faith in God this morning, church, is to believe and trust in the God that has revealed himself to mankind. We don't have faith in a God that we conjure up in our minds. We must believe and trust in the God in which is revealed to us in the word and through the living word, Jesus Christ. That is the standard. And that sounds like such a simple statement this morning, but it's not. We are so easily molded and shaped by our circumstances that we began to fashion a God into the likeness of the true God for our own liking. I don't like a God that controls all things and allows evil to occur. And so I'm going to fashion a God that is more gentle and kind, a Jesus maybe that loves and shows compassion, not a God of wrath or a God of judgment or a God with complete sovereignty. That's the God that some people fashion in their minds. Or I need a God who is all about me, who, yes, came and, and, and sent his son to die for me. And his, 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 his whole purpose of existence should be to please and to bless me. And that's the fashioning of, of a God into our likeness, into our desires. Not the way that God re re reveals himself to us. See, we must understand how God has revealed himself and then respond because the God of the Bible reveals himself as trustworthy, as good, as holy, righteous and loving and just in all his ways. The God of the Bible demonstrates his mercy in clothing Adam and Eve after their rebellion. And yet in his love, he keeps them from death. He withholds immediate spiritual death or a physical death, in order to fulfill his plan of redemption through the seed of the woman. He demonstrates his wrath in the flood, but he shows patience with Noah and his family 
who although they served God, were still guilty of gross sin against him. He shows himself as trustworthy as he promises to make Abram the father of many nations, even in his old age. And some 25 years later, our faithful God gives an elderly couple a son named Isaac, and the nation of Israel is born. Our God is faithful. He displays his grace to that nation who did not deserve to be the the chosen nation of God. They didn't deserve to escape the slavery under Pharaoh. They did not deserve to have the Messiah come from their lineage. But he cast his grace and his love upon them for his own glory. And so God has shown us most perfectly himself in the man Christ Jesus. He has shown us through the humble birth of a king who came out of, stepped out of heaven and comes down to earth to, to, to provide and, and, and provide a, a way of escape from sin. To become righteousness where we could not gain our own righteousness. To be the substitute for guilty enemies of God and, and those who put their faith in this God that has revealed himself to us will be saved. Through our faith, we are justified to God. So therefore, this morning, church, the simple message is for us that, that if we are to have true faith in God, we must not have faith in, in the God that we fashion, but in the God that has revealed himself to us, the eternal, uh, transcendent God. The one who is self-existent and seeks for his glory above all things. And our faith in God, in that God, the God of the Bible, should exist regardless of our circumstances. Because church... Most often, we fashion a God into our image and we fall into our idolatry when our circumstances are difficult. When our circumstances are dire and we begin to doubt God and who he is, or we begin to say, well, maybe God is this way. I mean, isn't that how Satan tempted Eve in the garden? Did God really say these things? Is eating the fruit really going to bring these consequences? And yet our faith in God is is a persevering faith. It's a faith to believe in the God of the Bible regardless of what may happen to us. Habakkuk chapter 3 reads, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor the fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herds in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord, and I will take joy in the God of my salvation. That is a, a persevering faith. A faith that transcends what may happen to us, but believing in God and who he says he is, knowing that even in our dire sufferings and tribulations, God is still good. That he is still seeking our good 
for his glory, even in the midst of difficulty. And so we see these disciples and, and we can understand that, that their, their circumstances could easily have dictated their faith. And we saw that happen. Remember Peter, right before the rooster crows three times, Peter is allowing the circumstances to dictate his faith in Jesus. The pressures of the Lord Jesus taken into custody. The pressures of, of being arrested himself. The pressures of being one who had been seen with Jesus and, and as an accomplice or companion to him led the, the great Peter, the apostle and disciple, to, to deny Jesus three times. And so we must acknowledge, church, that, that it is our inclination at times to have a, a wavering faith. And so the command of the Lord Jesus for his disciples is a present tense, continually have faith in God. Not have faith in God so you can be saved, but live day by day trusting in God in all of the circumstances that you may encounter. Be as Job said in Job chapter 13, why should I take my flesh and my teeth and put my life in my hand? Though he slay me, I will hope in him. And so this morning, as we face as a church and individually as different trials and tribulations, let the words and the commands of the Lord Jesus in the simple way of have faith in God be effective ammunition against the temptations of doubt. Let this phrase remind us to simply trust in his power, trust in his goodness, trust in his strength to help you overcome. And it should be a thought throughout our day. Lord, I need your faith. Help me to have faith today. A great example of this is seen in the life of Jairus. As Jesus encounters a ruler of the synagogue, Jairus comes to Jesus, pushing through the crowd, trying to get to him in desperation because his daughter was dying. And he finally comes to Jesus and he's telling Jesus, come with me, my daughter is sick. And Jesus begins to go with him. But the crowd is so thick and encounters uh, encompass Jesus. So that he's interrupted on the way with another opportunity to display his power of a, with a woman that had suffered this medical condition for most of her life. And this encounter with this woman takes time and Jesus is delayed and eventually the child, Jairus' daughter, dies. The circumstances were bleak for Jairus. The walls of time were closing in and it appeared that Jesus was too late to save his daughter. And in Luke chapter 8, verse 50, Luke, Jesus looks at, G, at Jairus with these grave circumstances surrounding him, and he says these words, do not fear, only believe. It's the same thing. Have faith in God. 
no matter your circumstances. Trust in his power, trust in his goodness, trust in his character as the almighty God. And lastly, faith in God is, is understanding that faith works in conjunction with his power and his plan. Jesus says, truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Church, we must immediately see this is hyperbole. We must not believe on the outset in verse 23 that Jesus expects believers in the power of the Holy Spirit to reorganize the landscape of our world. This is hyperbole. It's most likely that Jesus was saying these words while he was standing on the Mount of Olives, a few thousand feet above sea level. The imagery reminding the, 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 uh, the disciples, reminding them of the power that they had seen and reminding them how faith works in conjunction with God's power. We are called to have faith in God, but, but we're not called to have a weak faith in God. We will have a weak faith, but we're called to have a faith and trust in his power. And in doing so, we, in our faith, work in conjunction with the plan and the purposes of God, and only according to the plan and purposes of God. And for some, these verses have been taken out of context and used heretically for personal gain. You've most likely heard many names of prosperity preachers today and these are one of their chief verses to name it and claim it to believe and receive they would say that if God is commanding Jesus is commanding them here to believe without doubting and whenever I believe will be activated and and manifest into reality to take this literally, to literally means, and, and these prosperities preach it, that they can create things out of nothing. That by merely speaking words, things come into existence just as God created the world. And folks, if that's true, then that means that we are God. And you will hear these prosperity preachers say that as sons of God, we are the seed of God. That we're not just made in the image of God. We are lessers, lesser gods, as they would say. I'm reading the amazing book, God, Greed, and the Prosperity Gospel, written by Kosti Hinn. It's amazing. Kosti is the nephew of Benny Hinn. Kosti was the heir to the throne of Benny Hinn's ministry. He was the favored nephew of Benny that Benny was going to groom and prepare to take over when, when Benny 
was done. Costi's father was also a, a prominent prosperity preacher in Canada. But through providence and God's amazing grace, Costi began to, uh, to see the fallacies of the greed and the, the false doctrine and the prosperity gospel. And he defected from this erroneous gospel ministry. Now has come to faith in believing the true gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And has written a book exposing the reality of this false gospel that we call the prosperity gospel. He writes these words. He says, the sovereignty of God matters to Christianity. And we can go as far as to say that it is unchristian to deny the sovereignty of God. The prosperity gospel denies the sovereignty of God to the extent that it demeans God to the position of a puppet and elevates a man to the position of a puppet master who makes confessional demands by faith. It does this by considering faith as a force and God as the, as the one who must respond to our faith. He says, in the most arrogant claim that humans could possibly make, prosperity preachers declare that our mouths control our money and much more. They preach that God wants you to be healthy. You must confess and believe for it. God wants you to be wealthy. You must confess and believe for it. God wants your life to be comfortable and easy. Your confession controls your outcome. God wants you to have everything you need. Your negativity is a problem. God already sent Jesus to die for your abundant life. Your faith is the problem. God already sent Jesus to die for that job promotion to be yours. God already sent Jesus to pay for your debt so that you could live debt free. That's what the prosperity gospel preaches. And if you don't believe the type of nonsense that I've just stated here is a quote from Joel Olstein in his New York Times bestseller. Perhaps God has, he says, perhaps God has whispered something to your heart that seems totally impossible. It may seem impossible for you to ever be well again or impossible for you to get out of debt or get married, to lose weight, to start that new business. In the natural physical realm, he says, all the odds are against you. You don't see how it could happen. But if you're going to see those dreams come to pass, you've got to get your mouth moving in the right direction and use your words to help you develop a new image on the inside. Don't merely use your words to describe your situation. Use your words to, to change your situation. Now, that's bland enough that we would go, wow, that's a really motivating message. But the underlying foundation of that message is that you direct the power of God. That's what their theology teaches. And that is a theology that is not teaching the sovereign power and rule of God. Jesus is not telling us that we control the power of God. Jesus is inviting us to get into the activity of his power for his kingdom. 
He is inviting us to participate in what he is already doing. So he's saying, have faith and trust in me. Ask, but ask according to my will. And in doing so, you will see the impossible done. You will see that Jesus is not telling us that human power is an activating agent to his power. He is not some remote control of untapped resources that's just waiting on our human fingers to trigger the response. The infinite God of the universe does not submit himself to man. Man submits himself to God. So instead, we read, through the interpretation of all the scriptures, that we are to seek his kingdom and his righteousness, and what? And all these things will be added to you. True faith in Christ is seeking the kingdom of God and not the glory of man. And that a a believer will want to see God's plan come to fruition in their life. They'll want to turn away from sin. They don't want to give room, sin, and board in their hearts. And as we live for God's kingdom, then we can ask God with a believing heart and trust that he will provide. We don't have to be afraid to pray We just have to pray according to his will. And how do we pray according to his will? When we understand God's word, we will pray effectively in that way. When we are in God's word and we are saturated with his truth, then we will pray in such a way. So thus the the command is to have faith in God and the fruit of, of that faith is then earnest prayer. That's the fruit. When we trust in the sovereign God of the universe, then our natural response will be to trust in him and to depend upon him and to ask of that God. You are my father. And you are a father who, if he clothes the the flowers of the field and the birds of the air, who ask nothing, And we know that he cares much more for us than by all means we can ask. We can ask and we can pray as Jesus prayed. The Garden of Gethsemane is a great reflection and model for us. Jesus prays, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but you will. This is not the Son of God doubting a prayer or the power of of the Father. He is intimately wed in perfect unity with the Father. This is a Son praying as we should pray, taking our requests to our Father with honesty and yet submitting our lives to the perfect goodwill of the God of the universe. John says it best, I write these things to you that you may believe in the name of the Son of God and that, by, and that you may know that you have eternal life. So that's the faith that we have. 
believing in him, knowing confidently that we belong to him. And then he continues, and this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. This is the same things that Jesus is saying in Mark 11. He says, whatever you ask in, my, in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. That we are trusting and presently asking God, God, may I submit myself to your plan and your purpose? God, I, I, I would I pray in this area of my life, I pray for these things and I submit myself to whatever your plan and purposes are. Trusting in your goodness, not not wavering from your your wisdom and your, your good purposes, I trust you. And so this means that you can pray for a person to be healed. You can pray for a person or yourself to be healed from a sickness knowing that God may allow that sickness to continue and he may do it for his glory. You may ask him to provide in certain ways for your family as you know that you are asking in those ways so that you can further God's kingdom. That's why asking for a Ferrari is a little counterproductive to God really furthering your ministry for the kingdom, as some pray. But as you pray, you are merely producing or reflecting your genuine faith in Christ. And so may we pray, church, as we prayed for the salvation that we did not deserve and trust in confidence that we are saved, so may we pray, church, that God would give us more boldness for gospel ministry. That God would give us more grace for our brothers and sisters in Christ as we love them, as we show hospitality to one another. That we would have more passion to see the lost saved, including our children and our loved ones and our neighbors. That we would have more discipline in our spiritual lives. And that God would use our church to make an impact in the city of Bartlett and among the nations for his glory. And Jesus continues on in verse 25. And whenever you stand praying, which standing as you prayed was a a very common posture for praying in those days. And he says, and whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive your trespasses. So all we have to do is connect the dots here and we see Jesus reminding the disciples 
that unlike these condemned Jews who have turned away from me, have faith in God. Have faith in God, trust in him, rely upon him, ask in faith for God to work in your life according to his purposes. But another fruit of that, of your faith in God, is the fruit of faith, which is forgiving love. I mean, think about it. If our faith is truly in God, then God has saved us. And as God has saved us through Jesus Christ and has gifted us with the Holy Spirit and has given us the word of God that is conforming us into the image of Christ, well, a fruit of that is love, an outward love, a love that transcends even the greatest offenses towards us. And so the Spirit is guiding us as believers to be peacemakers, to be holy in our lives, and to turn away from the sin of bitterness and resentment. Why? Because that bitterness and that resentment affects the way that we pray. I mean, if Jesus Christ has truly saved us, then forgiveness the forgiveness that we have in Jesus is a prerequisite for the forgiveness we have for others. Ephesians 4.32. I like to read Ephesians 4.32 backwards. As God in Christ forgave you, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. The prerequisite is the grace that you have received. And then not only are we commanded to think about the way that Christ has saved us, but we can be commanded to think about the way that Christ lived. That he demonstrated this love for all people. He demonstrated his love for his enemies. He did not seek revenge. He sought to bring peace that is eternal between God and man. And as we are reconciled to God in peace, guess what? The Spirit helps us reconcile to man. And so bitterness and resentment does not belong in the person of God or in the, the people of God. And so we are all commanded, even in these verses, that as we pray, we must forgive. And we forgive, not because the person is deserving of our forgiveness necessarily, but because God has transformed your heart to be long-suffering as he is long-suffering. Long-suffering with people's offenses against you. Graceful and merciful But instead, we allow bitterness and resentment and unforgiveness to live in us. And it stifles our communion with God. And so verse 25 is not teaching that when we forgive others of their, for, for, of their offenses, that God will then activate forgiveness for us. We know that forgiveness comes through the work of Christ on the cross, our past, present, and future sins. But what it does mean is that a person who is content in living with the sin of bitterness does not desire the forgiveness of God because they don't belong to him. So then forgiveness 
manifested in our life is merely a fruit of our belief in a sovereign God. And so that faith in us that Jesus is saying that as you stand forgive and if you have anything against any, if you have anything against anyone so that your father who is in heaven may forgive you of your trespasses he's reminding us that the faith-filled heart of the believer forgives his enemies and you know how Jesus instructs us to forgive our enemies he says pray for them that if, if we truly have forgiveness, this is like the litmus test of forgiveness. If you truly have forgiveness, then you can pray for your enemies. And I'm not saying like, Father, would you, you know, please help this person see their wretched condition and come groveling back to me at my house and knock on my door and, and you know, dressed in sackcloth and ashes and 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 you know, serve me faithfully through the rest of their life. No, we are praying for God to bless them, our enemies. God bless our enemies. God be kind to them and merciful to them. Yes, God, help them. If, if they don't know you, help them understand the gospel and, and believe so that I may rejoice with them in their salvation. So that we may be united in brothers and, as brothers and sisters in Christ. Jesus told us these things in Matthew 5, 44 and 45. As the Jewish people were taught to hate their enemies, Jesus says, No, a, a person who belongs to the kingdom is commanded to love your enemies and to pray for them who persecute you. So that, the, that, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Why? For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust. This is a slap in the face to resentful hearts. Because Jesus is reminding us what the God of heaven does to his most vilest enemies. And he's not saying, look, God's not saying, look, I did this, you can do it too. He's saying, look, I am peaceful, peaceable, I am loving, I am forgiving of the greatest of sins, and I have given you the power to be the same way. I have given you the power to be forgiving. I have given you the power to be peaceable. So I'm not asking you to do something that I haven't given you the strength or will give you the strength to accomplish for my glory. And so church, if you have faith in God, if you believe and trust in his son solely for your foundation, then you will pray in such a way, depending upon his sovereignty, trusting and asking honestly and intimately knowing that he will bless and give us good gifts as our father. But as you ask, and as you come to him in prayer, do so with a peaceable and loving heart. And if you have resentment and you have bitterness, 
then you probably understand why your prayers have been hindered. And why you have not felt and understood a good connection and communion with God. And so your prayer this morning should be, God, would you please allow me to turn from this bitterness to love my enemies and grant forgiveness in my heart as you've forgiven me.